Hello, and welcome to the Foot School Podcast. I'm Andy Brummage. For this week's episode, we're borrowing a Q&A format that's popular among podcasts for kids. We call our version, Kids Ask, Teachers Answer. Learning at Foot always starts with a question. In fact, our entire curriculum is built around so-called essential questions that guide our learning throughout the year. Teachers and students are constantly returning to these questions as curricular touchstones, building knowledge together along the way. For this episode, we wanted to harness our students' natural curiosity in audio form so we could learn something new. We asked our students what they're curious about, with no guidelines at all, then put this grab bag of questions to our faculty and staff. I hope you'll learn something new from their answers. I know I did. Spoiler alert, before it was called Uranus, the eighth planet from the sun had a fairly ridiculous name. Without further ado, here's our first installment of Kids Ask, Teachers Answer. We'll start with a few science questions. Hi, my name is Amelia and I'm in sixth grade. My question is, how does plain sand become glass? That's a really great question, Amelia. I'm Kathleen O'Rourke. I'm the associate teacher for grade four, and I'm going to do my best to answer that for you. So let's think back to a really hot day in August when you're at the beach. It's probably hard to think of that right now as we're entering into winter, but remember stepping on that sand and it's hot, right? Scorching hot. And you're like, ouch, 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 ouch. Well, you know exactly how hot sand can get while it's remaining in its solid form. So the kind of heat necessary to transform sand into a liquid state is much hotter than that. So let's talk about how that magic behind making glass from sand really starts. And it's all about heat. So most of the world's beaches are made up of quartz-rich sand, which contains silica and oxygen. It's that silica that really makes it all happen. So you can make glass by heating ordinary sand until it melts and turns into a liquid. So the chemical process of creating glass, it has to undergo a very high temperature, over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's like the heat that the space shuttle engine has to get to before it can take off. So that's not something we're going to try at home. No way. So when you heat the sand, it becomes kind of a frozen liquid or what scientists refer to as an amorphous solid. Who knew, right? Glass has like two personalities. So once the sand is melted, it's either poured into molds to make bottles or glasses or other containers, or it's actually floated to make sheets for all the windows we see here at foot school. So again, glass is a bit of a phenomenon, right? It behaves like a solid, but it's also a weird liquid in disguise. My name's Olivia, and I'm in the fourth grade. And my question is, how does the body develop immunity against the coronavirus? Hi, Olivia. This is Mrs. Burge Lieberman. I teach sixth grade biology and sixth grade wellness, and I look forward to having you in a couple years. So there are many different layers someone can answer this question. I'm going to try to stick to the basics whilst also remaining accurate. So a virus that you asked about is just a type of pathogen, and a pathogen can be bacteria, virus, fungi, or any other microorganism that comes into your body that can cause disease. Your immune response, what your body does, is pretty much the same for any pathogen. There are, is an innate immune response, which is what you're born with, 
And it's kind of cool to think about because you have these white blood cell soldiers in your bloodstream that are looking for any evader that comes into your body, like a pathogen. And it will locate and find other cells to attack and destroy these invaders. This is what would happen anytime the first time your body is exposed to a virus, whether it's COVID, the common cold, or the regular flu. The first time your body encounters a disease, it may take a little while to respond, which is why you can have the common cold for seven to 10 days. But the second time your body encounters the same disease, it knows what to do through special memory cells. This is part of your acquired immune response or what you develop during your lifetime through exposure to pathogens and vaccines. Your body has these special memory cells in them. And remember the pathogens that your body has fought off before and can send out those cells to destroy known pathogens very quickly. One of the ways that you have acquired immune response is through vaccines. The first vaccine was the, developed in 1796 against smallpox, and it used the relatively mild cowpox virus to give immunity to the deadly smallpox virus. Basically, a vaccine encourages your body to make antibodies against a specific disease, usually with a dead or weakened form of the germs. It's enough to activate the immune response without making you sick. And then if you come in contact with that same pathogen again, your immune system knows what to do. And then it gets a little tricky because sometimes those memory cells fade over time or sometimes the pathogen changes over time and it's different enough from the original to not be recognized or detected by your body. For example, the common cold is caused by a virus, but we all get many colds in our lifetime. It's because there are more than 200 viruses that cause the cold, and they, those viruses are always mutating or changing. So there's probably no hope for having a vaccine to the common cold. I hope that helps answer your question. Hi, my name is Lark, and I'm in fourth grade, and I want to know if you open your eyes underwater without goggles, why is it blurry even if the water is clear? Thanks for your question, Lark. I'm Andrew Zielinski, or Mr. Z, and I teach third, fourth, and fifth grade science. To answer your question, I'll start with what allows us to see things at all, and that is light. Light bounces off an object, travels through the air, and into our eyes. Once it gets into our eyes, it actually passes through some of the different parts of our eyes, our cornea, our lens, and those things help focus the light rays or bend them so that they meet at the back of our eye, which is called the retina. There, the light rays get collected, sent to the brain, and the brain creates an image of whatever the thing the light bounced off of on its way to our eyes. This works because light actually changes speed when it travels from one material into another. For example, when it's traveling through air and then it changes to traveling through our cornea, it changes directions a little bit, slows down, kind of imagine a car going around a corner and slowing down, and that makes it bend towards the same point at the back of our eye. And that's what focuses the image. This works because our eyes are adapted to look at things in air, and the cornea bends light just enough to focus the image. Underwater, though, light travels a lot slower. It travels at a speed a lot more like the speed it would go through our cornea. Because it's not slowing down a lot when it goes from water into our cornea, it doesn't bend, and so the light rays don't quite meet at the back of our eye. That's why our brain creates an image that is blurry or unfocused. We can solve that problem by wearing goggles underwater and creating a little pocket of air in front of our eyes so that the, the light does bend when it goes from the air and into our eyes. 
Hi, my name is Sophia, and I'm in fifth grade, and this is my question. How do the planets get their name? Hi, my name is Elliot Dixon, and I teach eighth grade science. Thank you so much, Sophia. This is a really interesting question with an interesting story. The way the planets got their names is actually really interesting because most of the planets, what we know as Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, can all be seen in the night sky. So in ancient times across the world and across cultures, ancient peoples all, always looked up. There was no light interference and could see these, so they named them after different beings or in Southeastern Asia, different elements. And it, w it was probably because of Western Europe and the scientific revolution that the Greek and Roman names stuck. So Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn are all names of Roman gods. And if you think about it, Mercury moves across the sky the fastest. So he's named after the, the, the Roman god Mercury. Venus is the goddess of beauty because Venus is the first planet that comes out and is a sparkly yellow. Mars is the god of war, the color of blood, red. Jupiter is uh, the, the Greek version of that is Zeus, so the king of the gods because it's the biggest planet. Um, and Saturn is actually the god of agriculture, and I think it's probably because it uh, ends up being a little bit brown in the, in the sky. My favorite story, though, is that Uranus, Neptune, and the, the planet formerly known as Pluto were all discovered using modern technology with a telescope. And so the person, uh, the British astronomer who discovered Uranus actually wanted to name it after the king at the time. And if you've seen Hamilton, we know the king of the time in the, at the end of the 1700s is King George. And so Uranus for about 100 years was actually named George. So we had Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and George. And it wasn't until the scientific community decided to name them all after Roman and Greek gods that it was renamed Uranus for the god of the sky and then Neptune is blue so it's the god of the ocean and Pluto was the god of the underworld because it was so small and gray and that's how the planets got their name. Sports are big for a lot of our students both as athletes and fans of professional teams and a few students had some great questions about their favorite sports. My name is Rowan and I'm in first grade and I'm asking a question What's the farthest baseball that's got hit in the Olympics? Hi, I'm Adam Solomon. I teach fifth grade here at Foot School. Um, great question, Rowan. So baseball, people who, who focus on baseball are just totally obsessed with stats. Um, so I thought for sure it would be easy to find an answer to your question, but I really couldn't find anything about uh, long home runs in the Olympics. But I did find some interesting information. Uh, when I did some uh, searching on Google, I did see that the longest home run ever hit in Olympic Stadium, that's in Montreal where the Montreal Expos used to play, was in 1978 by a gentleman named Willie Stardrill with for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and that was 535 feet long. Um, so then I was kind of thinking, like, what were the longest home runs, or what have the longest home runs been in baseball? So I, I came up with a list, or I found a list, um, and s the first three on the list are not necessarily super accurate because they didn't have uh, accurate measuring tools back then. But in 1921, Babe Ruth uh, for the Yankees supposedly hit a 575-foot home run. Uh, in 1953, Mickey Mantle, also of the Yankees, uh, in Washington, D.C., supposedly hit a 565-foot home run. And then in 1971, at the All-Star Game in Detroit, Reggie Jackson uh, supposedly hit a 539-foot home run. 
But I did find a list of people with the longest home runs since uh, the accurate measuring tools have existed, and I'll give you the top three. Jose Canseco of the Oakland A's hit a 540-foot home run in 1989. Mark McGuire of the St. Louis Cardinals hit a 538-foot home run in 1997. And Adam Dunn of the Reds, Cincinnati Reds, hit a 535-foot home run in 2004. And one last thing I found, uh, in 1987, there was a, a guy named Joey Meyer, and he played for a minor league team, the Denver Zephyrs. And supposedly, he hit a home run that was measured at 582 feet. So that's the longest uh, that's ever been recorded. So that's it. Sorry I couldn't find the exact answer to your question, but still a lot of fun to research. Thanks. My name is Osi, and I'm in fourth grade. And my question is, who invented soccer? Hi, my name is Denise Quinn, and I'm a fourth grade teacher. And thanks, Osi, for the question about who invented soccer. Most people think that soccer was invented in England. And actually, modern soccer was invented in England in the 1860s. And actually, it was detached from rugby and then became soccer. But soccer was actually invented in the second century BC in China during the Han Dynasty. It was called Shu Shu. And it was a military game where they did use a ball, and the ball was made out of hair and feathers, and the net was actually made out of bamboo. But the big difference between shu-shu and soccer as we know it today is that the bamboo net was actually three feet off the ground. So soccer is really popular in England and the United States, but the origins actually come from China. We got a great question about books, and how lucky are we to have an award-winning middle-grade author on our faculty to answer this question. My name is Mavis, and I'm in first grade. My question is, what was the first book to be published? Thank you for the question, Mavis. Excellent. My name is Jake Burton. I teach fifth grade here at the Foot School. It's actually a really interesting question because there's a lot of different ways to come at it. When you ask, what's the first book ever published? We could take that question and think of it as, what's the first book we know about? The first book ever written that other people then read. Um, and if you want to think about it that way, I think most historians would say it's the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, which was actually written not on paper, but rather on stone tablets in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, it's the story of a hero that goes on to fight against death, which is a pretty classic story in mythology, people going to try to thwart death. So that's the very first book we know of. But if we're actually talking about the publication process, that is printing books uh, on paper so that other people can read them, that's usually attributed to Johannes Gutenberg, uh, who lived in Europe in the 15th century, and he actually printed a copy of the Bible. Uh, it's called the Gutenberg Bible, and that was uh, printed uh, using movable type on big printing machines, and then lots of people were able to read the Bible. Uh, he wasn't the first one to invent movable type. That was actually invented in Korea a little bit before that, um, but he was the first one to use it to mass produce a book. 
And if you're asking, what's the first book published here in the United States? Well, that was a book of psalms. Uh, psalms are uh, little lessons or songs or instructions, also from the Bible. Um, and that was printed in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, so lots of different ways to answer that question. But I love that question because here at Foot, we love books, we love printing, and we love reading. Thanks, Mavis. We also received a few questions about the modern languages we teach. Here's one about Spanish. My name is Nora, I'm in sixth grade, and my question is, what is the most commonly used word in Spanish? I'm Sally Nunnally, and I'm a middle school Spanish teacher at Foot. And Nora, I'm going to answer your question, which I thought was really interesting, which is, what is the most used word in Spanish? And um, you, my answer may disappoint you because you're probably hoping it's something a little more interesting, like chocolate or I don't know what. Um, but actually, the most, according to a couple of different sources, the most commonly wor used words in Spanish are really small words, um, like the word de, which is a preposition meaning of or from. And um, according to another sort of way of looking at it, the definite articles, el, la, los, and las, altogether would be considered the most commonly used words or expressions in Spanish. And if you think about it, um, it's pro it might be what we would expect, right? Because in English, we use articles all the time in our speech or other small connecting words like uh, conjunctions. So it's not all that surprising, even though it's maybe not as interesting um, as we might hope for. A few students asked about the history of foot school and were fortunate to have a past parent who's become something of an expert on this topic. My name is Lola and I am in sixth grade. My question is, what inspired the creators of Foot School to create Foot School and why did they name it that? Thank you. I am Cindy LaFell. I'm a former Foot parent. I'm the mother of two alums from the class of 2009 and 2011 and I continue to stay involved at Foot as the volunteer archivist. I'll start with the second part of that question. How did Foot get its name? Foot School, which you know was founded in 1916, was the creation of a woman named Martha Babcock Foote. And you may have noticed her portrait in the reception area of the main building. In its early years, the school was known as Mrs. Foot School, or just Foots. And even today, I can still hear some of our oldest alums call the school Foots. So Mrs. Foote graduated from Bryn Mawr College in 1902, and she had studied education there. And it was there that she developed her belief in progressive education. And even as one of her class projects, she designed her ideal school. So what is progressive education in 1902? So back then, progressive education involved concepts like developing the individual child, joyful learning, and student-focused learning. These were really radical ideas back then. She also emphasized the importance of the arts, particularly performing arts like music and drama, as an essential component of elementary education. At that time, back then, most schools had young children just sitting at desks doing memorization of facts and rote repeating of lessons, but foot school was never like that. The core principles that continued to infuse a foot education go back to these earliest days and Mrs. Foote's philosophies, which were curiosity, creativity, independence, always co-education, academic rigor, embracing the arts, and service to others. 
That's all for this episode. We had more questions than we could answer in a single go. So watch for part two of this series in the weeks ahead. Meanwhile, if you have a question you want to ask a teacher, you can submit it at www.footschool.org podcast, and we'll find someone to answer it. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Footschool Podcasts are a production of The Foot School, an independent school for grades K-9 in New Haven, Connecticut. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It will help other people find our podcast. Thank you for listening.